like to continue our explorations of how to develop speech practice uh, when there are challenges, how to work with skillful speech in challenging situations. So I thought I'd give two um, short quotations just to start that get at different aspects of this question. The first is from, is attributed to uh, the Greek philosopher Socrates. It goes like this. The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. Hmm. (laughs) The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. And another perspective is from a young boy who was one of a group of children who were asked about the meaning of love. This is Billy, age four. We have Socrates and Billy. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. And that's actually the essence of it all. (laughs) We actually don't need to go too much further than what Billy said. But given that we have an evening talk, I will expand. (laughs) But I'll come back at the end to another version of what Billy was getting at. So I'll actually finish with that, with something very similar, but expressed in a different way. So the kind of approach that we've been encouraging is to develop the capacities for skillful speech first in protected environments. That is, we cultivate the inner tools, and I think we're really emphasizing that there are two broad kinds of capacities that are important for for skillful speech. The first is the capacity to work with our inner states to work with what comes up in our minds, to develop beautiful qualities, beautiful inner states, love, compassion, wisdom, and so forth, and to be able to be skillful with the more challenging aspects of our inner states. And then we also connect that with our language use. and We try to see what are more skillful approaches to language use that come out of those qualities that we could call the the qualities of an awakened heart and mind. Compassion, love, wisdom, mindfulness, generosity, equanimity, and so forth. And we've we've had this dual emphasis on both the the inner cultivation and then the cultivation of speech. And it's really kind of the hallmark of our approach here, is that those two are deeply connected and need both to be developed, and that, and that the development occurs through practice. I think you've got the sense that our habits, whether they're the habits of our minds and hearts and bodies or the habits of our speech, are deeply entrenched. And yet they can be worked with. We wouldn't be offering this if we thought otherwise. We wouldn't be offering these perspectives if we thought that it's too hard. But it does take practice. It does take continuity of work or practice in both areas. And that's quite important. So first, you know, our strategy is we we practice with non-challenging situations 
in protected environments in terms of our speech. And we, we practice the cultivation of our inner qualities also in this relatively protected environment. Yeah. It's relatively protected, but we still have our own minds. Reminds me of what Annie Lamott one, once said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try to be cautious when I go there. <laughs> you know, so we create this uh, relatively protected environment, but we still have our minds and hearts and bodies. So um, we do our best with that. But, but, but then we start to, as we've been doing this afternoon, we start to uh, bring up some challenging situations in terms of our speech practice in this relatively protected environment. We practice. It's like uh, uh, a dojo for martial artists. You know, we practice just like martial artists practice in their in their um, in their dojo or their 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 place of developing capacity. You know, and we are working with these different ways to practice. You know, that we can create uh, help create a situation by working with lunch, where we can uh, go closer to the everyday life a little less protected, right? A little less protected. So that's, that's really the rhythm of our practice, that we keep on practicing and developing in relatively protected environments and that we go into uh, more challenging situations. And of course, um, certain times challenges occur in our, in our inner work as well. I, w- I was reflecting on the very significant role that practicing in protected environments with difficult situations has had in the field of social change. Some of you probably know in the civil rights movement, uh, there were role plays done continually. Before people went into challenging situations, they practiced. You know, there's some beautiful documentaries on that. People practiced and they, they did role plays together where they heaped abuse on each other, so the things that they might expect. Or they, they, they practiced on what am I going to do when someone comes at me with extremely uh, insulting language? You know? And how can I work with my inner reactions beforehand and work with that some? And it's, it's actually a staple of uh, training in nonviolence is to do the, that kind of... Uh, role play, to, to go into challenging situations, but with a supportive framework. Really important part of our practice. I think a lot of what we uh, will do as we continue, and if we continue over the months and years, that's a big part of our, our learning. Partly, we develop the capacity to be more and more comfortable with the uncomfortable. I mean that. <laughs> so that we, we, we learn better that opening to what's uncomfortable is a really significant part of learning. It goes against a lot of our conditioning, which is to prefer the comfortable. And it's very, very deep. I mean, I, I, I know I've experienced this when I've traveled to other countries where certain amenities. I remember I traveled several times to the former Soviet Union um, in the 1990s, the first time right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And there were a lot of things that were very hard to get, you know. Um, the, the main thing I remember is that uh, toilet paper just could not be found. I don't know if, it was really, really hard to find. And I, but I, 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 with other things too, I became sensitive to how, you know, I don't think of myself as a pampered person, but I found that I was used to certain comforts which I took for granted, you know, and we may find that in other ways as well. And here, you know, in our meditation practice, we're learning how to open to what's challenging, you know, whether it's challenging body state or challenging emotions, challenging thoughts. We learn both to open to them and to be much more skillful in working with them. That's a huge part of our work. We really take the approach that 
I can learn in a significant way from my difficulties. There's a beautiful Tibetan saying in, the, in, in uh, what are called the Lojong teachings where it says, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Or that, in other words, not to be so afraid of difference or conflict. Probably many of us, including myself, were raised to be somewhat conflict avoidant. Does anyone have that conditioning? Probably many, not all of us. Generally, the two main forms of conditioning are either to be conflict avoidant or when conflicts are there to act out. It's kind of the two extremes. You know, what we're encouraging is more a middle way where we open to it without acting out. Not so easy. And we, we discover that it can be valuable to be, to be tested. That at a certain point, we're willing to go into our challenges and learn. You have to know the right time for that. It's not all the time. It's really important to know I need maybe a sustained period of healing. And it's not the time to go into certain challenges. It's really, really important to have that inner sense. But at a certain point, we can be willing to be tested. There's a very interesting uh, story in the teachings of the Buddha uh, in which he talks about the importance of being tested, and particularly tested by by difficult speech and difficult situations. Um, He talks about a woman named uh, Vedahika who had a very good reputation. I'll, I'll read from the text. This good reputation has spread about Vedahika, that she is gentle, that she is meek, that she is calm. Now, this woman Vedahika had a maidservant named Kali. Anyone who knows who Kali is? <laughs> A figure often connected with destruction. <laughs> anyway, her maid was named Kali. And Kali was able, energetic, and methodical in her work. It occurred to Kali, a good reputation is spread about my lady, that she is gentle, that she is meek, that she is calm. Could it be that she has anger within her, which does not show? Or could it be that she does not have anger? Or it is, beca- is it because I am so methodical in my job that my lady, although she does have anger within does not show it, and not because she does not have anger. Why don't I test her? (laughs) (laughs) And so Kali got up late the next morning. And Vedahika said to Kali, Hey, Kali, what is it, lady? Why do you get up so late? Oh, it is nothing. What? That is nothing? You bad maidservant, you got up late. Angry and displeased, she frowned. (laughs) And it occurred to Kali. This is the Buddha telling the story. It occurred to Kali. Though she does have anger within, she does not show it. It is not that she does not have anger. It is because I am methodical in my job that she does have anger within but doesn't show it. Why don't I test her further? And so she got up either later than before. Vedahika said to Kali, Hey, Kali, what is it, my lady? Why did you get up even later than before? Oh, it is nothing. (laughs) What? That is nothing? You bad maidservant. You got up even later than before. Angry and displeased, she gave vent to her displeasure. And it occurred to Kali. Though she does have anger within, she does not show it. It is not that she does not have anger, It is because I'm methodical in my job. And she went on like that. Why don't I test her further? And so she got up even later than before. And she, uh, Vedahika said, told Kali, Hey, Kali, what is it? Why do you still get up later? Oh, it is nothing. What it is nothing? You bad maidservant, you got up so late. Angry and displeased, she hit her on the head with a door bar and injured her head. Kali, with her head injured and blood oozing, went out among the neighbors shouting, 
look at the deed of the gentle one. Look at the, <laughs> look at the deed of the meek one. Look at the deed of the calm one. How can she, saying to her own maid, you got up late, angry and displeased, take a doorbar and give me a blow on the head and injure my head? At this point, the Buddha steps in. <laughs> and this is what he says. In the same way, practitioners, some practitioner may look very gentle, very meek and calm, so long as disagreeable ways of speech do not assail that person. But it is when disagreeable ways of speech assail that person, then it is to really be judged whether the person is gentle, meek, or calm. So it's the value, really the value of being tested, or the value of really seeing what's there. Another, um, another similar perspective, it's really about being willing to go deeper and taking a different approach maybe to uh, challenges or difficulties. In a, in a text from about the 8th century, uh, Shantideva, who wrote this beautiful text called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And the Bodhisattva is the one who is dedicated to helping others and also dedicated to awakening. And for that bodhisattva, one has to have a different attitude towards people who are difficult. This is what Shantideva says. Just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my half to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy. For that enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Strong statement. Just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for that enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. So how to, how to work with those difficult situations, different people? I'd like to invite you to reflect, bring to mind, it may be a similar situation as we use for the exercise, but bring to mind right now, take a, take a few moments to bring to mind a challenging situation with another in which speech is involved. And again, maybe, maybe a degree of difficulty here as much as six or seven, not 10, not nine, could be uh, aspects of a relationship or work or with relatives. And bring it to mind. Bring a situation, maybe one situation to mind as if you're experiencing it. What are the emotions and thoughts and reactions that are part of this experience? What kind of emotions do you have? What kind of thoughts? What happens to your body? And recall a time when you may have, with this situation or something like it, acted unskillfully. Just reflect on a way that you might have acted unskillfully with either this situation or something like it. And also recall when you, um, some ways that you may have acted skillfully with this situation or something like it. Again, we're not looking for perfection, but just what are some ways that you acted in this challenging situation that actually were skillful?
And I'd like to invite you to keep this example as a, as a reference point, you know, as I explore some of the ways that um, we might be more skillful with challenging situations. Again, the starting point is to have the approach that at certain times it can be skillful to open to what's difficult. At certain times, it's not skillful. At certain times, personally, it's very important just to take care of ourselves to the extent that we have choice. A lot of times we don't have choice. But at other times, we can start taking on these challenges as a form of practice. We can take on difficult emotions. What I have found is that there comes a point when we actually become very interested in our own patterns by which we suffer. Sometimes we just want to get rid of them at first in our practice, or we would like them all to go away. We may assume, I think I assumed when I was starting to practice, that if I practiced enough, maybe in a few years, I wouldn't have any problems whatsoever. Has anyone had that idea? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, At a certain point, there's a certain point at which practice matures, and we become interested in how we lose it. And maybe we start with the small stuff. We don't start with the biggest, but we become actually interested. How do I become reactive? What are these situations? Let me try to learn from them and respond. And it may be to start just with things that aren't, again, not degree of difficulty, nine or ten, but I start with situations in which I become judgmental or upset. You know, again, maybe on a scale of five or six. And I work with those. And I can actually, at a certain point, become, oh, I'm suffering. Let me look at it. Let me investigate. One of my first practices that I ever did, right when I was beginning, I was given from Joseph Goldstein. He gave me this practice that said, if you're suffering, look for where you're attached or look for what the attachment or the kind of compulsive quality is of the situation. It's very helpful. I started going around a lot just saying, okay, where am I attached? You know, or I'm, I suffer because of this di- outcome didn't happen. Okay? And I say, oh, I'm attached to the outcome, right? and so forth. So very interesting practice. So I want to point to a few ways that we can be skillful, be more skillful with challenging situations. And in this, I want to take some of what we've already explored and expand a lot of them a little bit further. So I'll be exploring again some of the main themes that we've been looking at. It is helpful to remember that what makes speech situations difficult is primarily that we have difficult experiences in those situations. It's kind of related to a a few years ago, I I did a day-long here at Spirit Rock, and I was giving some talks that was very interesting. I I teach on Wednesday mornings down in the community hall here. I share the teaching with Sylvia Borstein. And I asked people, okay, um, what kind of themes should we explore in the next period of time? And one of the main themes that came up was how to be with so-called difficult people. And so I started a series of talks called The Dharma of Difficult People <laughs> and actually gave a day long on it. And eventually, of course, I had to put difficult people in quotation marks because guess what? There are no objectively difficult people. There are certain people whom a lot of people find difficult, but that's not the same thing. Why? What we found, this is kind of a breathtaking insight, Why are so-called difficult people difficult? Because I have difficult experiences with them. Do you get the you get the change of focus? You know, it's not like they it's very similar to what Oren was teaching about where do feelings come from, right? 
Do feelings come objectively from a situation? Not really. We, we looked at that. And similarly, does, does upset come objectively from other people? Do they transmit the upset or reactive um, microbes that go into my system and make me have a difficult experience? No. Not to say that they might not do a lot of do things, which a lot of people find difficult, but it's really key to focus on our own experience. This is related to what I was talking about two nights ago, this sense of taking responsibility for our own experience is very, very crucial. And so we found that what makes so-called difficult people difficult is because I have anger, frustration, fear, sorrow, despair, whatever, with those people. And that's a, really, that's a really crucial understanding. It can really change things. It means that in any difficult situation, I especially look to what am I experiencing, which is really the theme we've been encouraging with the sittings and with the speech practice. Look at what's there in our experience. Really, really crucial. I also want to talk a little bit more about grounding in the body because it's a really important aspect of being with difficult situations. And I think we've explored this quite a bit. And it was explicit in the exercise we did this afternoon to when there is a difficult experience, a difficult emotion, a difficult thought, if we can pause, breathe, feel the body, it can be really, really helpful. A lot of times if we get triggered, meaning if someone says something maybe like one of those statements from the card that we ask people to say to ourselves, uh, say to us, rather. And I get a statement like that. You know, like a statement like, um, you're too sensitive. Has anyone got that? It's quite, quite common when we do this exercise. It's very common in meditative circles. And we get, we get that or we get, uh, you know, uh, statements like I gave to Oren or what you wrote on your cards. Sometimes they can trigger us in ways that our body has these intense reactions. People are talking about that some. That we can have intense reactions. We can have the experience that's called flooding, which we've mentioned a few times, which is a strong physiological reaction in the body. That when that's occurring... It makes it very, very hard for us to be mindful and to be skillful in our speech. We could have taken, uh, you know, 10 years of this practice, and, if we, and we might be triggered, and all that goes out the window at times. And at those moments, it's very important to come back to balance. And a major way of doing that is to do through, so through the body. It's also to know that when we're triggered like that, it can be very wise not to act to not even try to speak. You know, we, we talked about that some. That it can, you know, a major way to respond to difficult situations is to check out whether I'm balanced. And a good way to look for that is, is to see what it, there is in the body. And if I'm not balanced, I can, number one, try to get back to balance. And if I'm with another, I can, I can say, could we talk about this later? You know, we can talk in various ways. We have to have enough mindfulness to know we're not balanced. And then we can say, I'm feeling uh, unbalanced or I'm feeling very triggered or whatever we might communicate to the person. Would you be willing to, to come back and talk about this later? You know, and hopefully the answer is yes, but even if it's no, we might choose to pull back anyway. You know, sometimes people demand that we keep speaking and that might not be wise. And so we have to, have to know that. We can also train further to be grounded in the body. And, you know, from, the, from some of the martial arts, there, there are these two concepts which are really important. One is centering and the other is grounding. And these are really valuable trainings that we can train to be more aware of our bodies in general through some of the practices we've done, like the practice of being with the whole body. For me, it's actually, that's a practice that I did for the better part of two years. Just that grounding in the body 
It makes such a huge difference to be in the body like that. What I found personally was that before I did that, I found that I could have a very clear mind, I could often have a very open heart, and if I couldn't center in my body, I would get knocked around a lot. It's very interesting. You know? I could have this capacity to be quite open and caring, and I could be clear in my mind, but if I couldn't keep my center and keep grounded, I wouldn't be able to use that good heart and I wouldn't be able to use that clear mind. And so there's a tremendous value. You know, and this isn't, this isn't always taught in our practices. It's really, I have found it really, really crucial to develop that grounding in the body. You can do that in different ways. We can do it meditatively by really st- uh, developing awareness of the body. Or we could do some other practices. One can develop awareness and keep it in the belly or the center can relate to that experience that Danny was talking about, of being in that center. You can do that meditatively. You know? um, some meditation traditions train one to be with the breath in the belly and to be able to go there, or to really keep the awareness there. And that's very similar to what one might develop in something like Qigong, or in Tai Chi, or in some of the other martial arts like Aikido, where the training is to keep, to develop a strong center. In Japan, it's called the Hara, or in, in um, Chinese, the Tantian, and to keep that center there. And I found that that was crucial for being able to use the mind and the heart creatively. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's a lot. So we want to really, that's one of the reasons we're emphasizing the body so much. So actually, I, I think I believe to have to really keep this going, I think one needs an ongoing body practice of some kind. It could be the meditative practice of just really being with the body and working on that. Or it could be something like uh, qigong, like we've been doing in the mornings. Done over time, that will develop that center. And that's quite important. I find that's quite important to be able to, be able to more easily use the speech practice and the mindfulness practice. It's interesting. I hadn't... I hadn't thought that until really I, I had that, that training myself. A lot of our work with speech has been looking for how to avoid speech that is judgmental or blaming. So we try to take that radical uh, responsibility for our own experience So I wanted to say a little bit about the nature of the judgmental mind because it's really, really prevalent. And I think training in working with judgments can be really, really crucial as part of what we're doing. And it's been of interest to me um, as someone who was conditioned to be rather judgmental. And so my own practice actually had a had, uh, there's been a lot of attention to the judgmental mind in quite a number of ways. Um, And to the point where um, I started, uh, there was enough work done about nine years ago, so I started teaching on it. And I've had actually monthly groups on the judgmental mind for nine years. It's very, very interesting. But I wanted to just say a few words and kind of ground it some in my own experience. To, to help give a sense of, of what judgments are and how they work. I'm defining judgments in the sense of being judgmental. So some examples might be um, one of the main judgments that I found at an important time when I was doing practice on my own judgments was that I was, uh, I had been really, really busy in the world for quite a number of years, and I judged myself for neglecting my spiritual practice really, really harshly. I noticed that. So I would be really harsh to myself. And there's a lot, of, you know, for a lot of us, there can be a strong self judgment, harsh negative evaluation. Or I might be judgmental of my coworker or my boss, right? The example I gave a few nights ago, my boss doesn't listen at all. 
could be quite judgmental. I can be judgmental of, of public figures. Many of us spend considerable amount of time being judgmental of public figures. Some people make a living from doing that. And what characterizes judgments is that there often can be some noticing or discernment, but it's linked with reactivity. There's an edge to it. There's a charge. So I may notice something very accurate about my boss, but if I'm judgmental, there's a really harsh negative evaluation. I, you know, as we saw, I can even have a neutral observation a seemingly neutral observation in terms of the language and have it come out judgmental, you know. What would that be? Um, you came in the house and went right to your computer. Right. Right. That was our example from earlier in the day. That could be um, stated in a very different tone. Stated like that, that's judgmental. And so judgments like that are differentiated from what we might call pure discernments or the pure observations. There's a noticing, but there's no reactivity. And reactivity means typically the pushing away, the aversion, the strong negative evaluation, especially. I think they're positive judgments, but the main ones that are interesting are the negative ones. And so... Um, what, that, what I have found is that judgments all have that reactivity. It's, in other words, judgments are a combination of discernment and reactivity. And what, that, what I found that helps us do is that the work to, that we need to do is to find ways to transform the reactivity so there's, no, there's none or less reactivity. Then we use the noticing or the discernment for the purposes of compassionate action. So if I don't have reactivity about that situation of uh, the computer or my boss, I may be able to take that information and use my language skills and actually approach the situation with the intention to connect or the intention to work with the situation constructively. If the judgmental mind is present, that's very hard. And so the reactivity is the problem. And it's quite important because what that means is that what we call the judgmental mind actually can carry very useful information and sometimes moral energy that's very positive. But when it gets caught up with the reactivity, it tends to, um, well turn poisonous in a way. And so the work to be done that I have found is to transform that reactivity in two main ways. One, by going into the judgment, seeing it, being aware of it, seeing the patterns, studying it, eventually going beneath the judgment. And the other way is by opening to loving kindness and opening to really non-judgmental, more awakened parts of ourselves. So when I work with people, the first thing I have them do is really be mindful of the judgments, and that sets up this going to study them, look more deeply in them. And the other thing is to start having a good uh, repertoire of heart practices, because what I found is that, and I found this in myself, like when I was judging myself at not having done enough spiritual practice. Very harsh, where I could judge, I judge some of the people I had worked with, they're not, you know, and so forth, over a lot of years. When I actually was mindful and went into those judgments, what I found was that beneath the judgment, there's pain. That judgments are a kind of defense mechanism, and that there's pain beneath them, that judgments are driven by unacknowledged pain. I found that in myself, I could say more about how to find that out, to discover that for oneself, but I found that it was, became very important. And I found that when I actually touched those, that pain that's beneath the judgments, the judgments tend to dry up. There tends to be some healing. So for me, I could touch some grief. 
you know, about the last years. I could touch some sadness when I stayed with that. And our method of mindfulness is more to touch these qualities uh, for short periods of time, a number of different times. We sometimes may think that when we touch what's difficult, we have a cathartic experience. We'll kind of go into it and have this huge, intense experience and there'll be fireworks and explosion. I thought that uh, myself, but it didn't really happen. What our practice really is to actually find ways to go into it for relatively short amounts of time often, and you stay with it, and something shifts. Sometimes, of course, we have things intensely and we stay with them, but often we stay with them many, many, many times for shorter periods. And there can be healing in that. As I found in myself that judgments were so connected to pain, and even really small ones, like I go to the food line at a retreat. I was, I was doing a lot of my learning at retreats. So I go to a food line at retreat, and there'd be a really long line because there were all these condiments. Anyone relate to that experience? And I would be judging. They should, have, they should line this up better so we don't have to wait so long. It's not, not so much an issue here because we don't have so many people, but some of our retreats, we have double the number. Mm. So you can really wait for a while. And I would, I would do this practice and notice I'm being judgmental about the food line, about how the cook should line it all up. And I touch inside and I find a kind of pain impatience. We make a judgment of the driver with the cell phone at the light. You actually go inside and you find there can be some pain. So it's very similar to this kind of work we've been doing with NDC. We try to listen more deeply beneath the surface. And there are practices that can help us open up to what's beneath the judgments. And that actually, again, I'm giving a short version, but it's actually a way that they get healed. I found that as I did that better and did it in myself over a sustained period of time, when I was with judgmental people, I didn't get so hooked by their judgments. Really, really interesting. Because judgments are so easy to hook us, right? They're the things which probably for most of us they hook us immediately, you know, and we lose our center. What I found was that when I went into my own judgments and touched the pain beneath it, I'm way more likely when someone else was judging me or maybe judging someone else, I could more empathically tune into the pain beneath the judgment. And I wasn't hooked by the words. It was really interesting. For a period when I was doing that work, I really wanted to be around judgmental people. And I did. I searched them out. <laughs> this lasted for about a year. <laughs> but, but actually, there was something that was, uh, com- you know, that was connecting with them. I could, and I wouldn't get hooked. And it's actually very, you know, it's still a practice that if I work with this way, it's a really a variant of listening for what's beneath the surface in terms of values or needs. It's this quality of a kind of deep listening, which we can do when we've done our own inner work. When we've done our own inner work and, and gone to this place of looking for the values, feeling the emotions, or feeling what's beneath the judgments, we can have this quality of deep listening. And I want, I want to say a few more words about that because it's really this very, very beautiful quality that we really want to cultivate. And it's really implicit in what we've been doing so far that to develop skillful speech, we need to be deep listeners. We need to have that capacity. And it's beautiful that it's such a central metaphor for spiritual practice. Some of you may know, even in the community hall down below here, there is an image of the the, uh, Tibetan uh, meditator and poet named Milarepa. Beautiful image. And you can see Milarepa is always shown with his hand to his ear. As if that's the essence of his spiritual practice, his deep listening. Or we can think of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, who is said that her work is to listen to the cries of the world. She's a listener. She's a deep listener. 
And so we cultivate that quality of listening in our practice, really. You could say that our meditation practice is cultivating deep listening. We listen to our bodies, we listen to our hearts, we listen to our minds. And we've been in this retreat, then bringing out that capacity to listen and be able to listen to others. To cultivate deep listening of others, we call that empathy. We call that empathic understanding. And we can train in that, we can practice. I just want to read this wonderful little book that, that is a beautiful book about deep listening. It's called The Other Way to Listen. It's actually a children's book. Beautiful book. I'll read from it some. Okay, so can get your mats in order, <laughs> if you wish. And it's told by a child. It's about deep listening. I used to know an old man who could walk by any cornfield and hear the corn singing. Teach me, I'd say, when we passed on by. I never said a word when he was listening. Just tell me how you learned to hear that corn. And he'd say, it takes a lot of practice. You can't be in a hurry. That's what we're saying. (laughs) And I'd say, I have the time. He was so good at listening, once he heard wildflower seeds burst open, beginning to grow underground. That's hard to do. He said he was just lucky to have been by himself up there in the canyon after a rain. He said it was the quietest place he'd ever been and he stayed there long enough to understand the quiet. I said, I bet you were surprised when you heard those seeds. But he said, no, I wasn't surprised at all. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. He just smiled, remembering. So there's that listening in, you know, in this very simple way to nature and the earth, and there's this deep listening that we do. and the deep listening to what's there beneath the surface. It's maybe a way of talking about deep listening. It's knowing what's there beneath the surface words, and it takes this continual practice, and we can almost say, let me, we could almost go into a situation sometime, just like we did at lunch, and maybe go sometime when we don't have anything to do, and let me just practice deep listening for what's beneath the surface especially a situation when there's not much at stake. I don't know, or watch an old movie and practice deep listening. (laughs) Watch a movie and practice deep listening in that situation. Beautiful practice. Maybe we should bring in an old movie. (laughs) So I want to close with um, another story. And it's really to make the point that we've been training in various ways. We've been training in mindfulness. We've been training in using language in certain ways. And we could say that these are very, very important. But what they're really doing, what all these practices are doing, is they're helping us in speech situations or in interactive situations to more ably or more easily connect with our mindfulness, our good attention, our compassion, our love, and our wisdom. That's what all this is trying to do. If we could stay with our kindness and our wisdom and our mindfulness all the time, we might learn a few things about skillful language use, but we'd have done 80 or 90% of the work if we could actually stabilize and be loving all the time, which, of course... um, For most of us, um, that's maybe what we aspire to, or to be loving a lot of the time, maybe. If we could do that, we wouldn't maybe need to be at this retreat. We would, again, could learn some tools about skillful speech. But I think it's helpful to see that all of this is aiming at staying in our center. 
when things are, in this case, when things are challenging. Staying with our best love, our best wisdom, our best understanding, our best compassion. How do we do that? All of what we've been teaching are ways to do that. And so I think I want to, I want to end with a story of someone who I believe manifested that quality of love and wisdom in action, probably without ever having meditated and without ever having studied NVC. But there were, I, I, would, I believe, a lot, of, a lot of love there. So this is the story. It's a true story. It's set in Tokyo. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives with their kids, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was out, was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. This is actually an American studying Aikido martial art in Japan named Terry Dobson. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was my martial skill was untested in actual combat. (laughs) As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. (laughs) All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, somebody shouted, hey! It was ear-splitting. Hey! I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in the easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. 
He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels, why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. <laughs> the old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You know, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden. And we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree is better than I expected, though especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer, my wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn, sitting, standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-the-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness. I suddenly, found dirt, I suddenly found, felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, that is a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on the bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could really speak about the resolution of conflict. So we'll just sit for a few moments. So this is our practice to cultivate this deep listening to ourselves and others and to have our response, our speech, come more and more out of the deep listening. It's a moment-to-moment practice that we, that we do. So we have now time for 
about 20 minutes of uh, walking. And you're welcome to stay here or to do standing. And we'll come back at 9 for the loving-kindness practice. So thank you for your um, deep listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.